Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. On the planet. With your host, Paul Murphy, and expert coach, Nick Nanavati. Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of The Art of War. My name is Paul Murphy, your host. I'm joined by Nick Natavati. What's up everyone? It is good to be back as always. This is a Tiernid extravaganza. A tier extravaganza. A Nidstravaganza? Yeah. Look, somebody help us out. You, how, what, how do you describe a jubilee of Tyranids? Tyranid time. And we're joined. This is a, a two-part episode. It's actually like a four-part, eight-part. I don't know. It's going to be a lot of parts of this episode because there's a lot to talk about. But in this segment, we're joined by Jesper Yunandaskarin. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I hope I got your last name close to it. It's as good as I uh, could have hoped for. (laughs) (laughs) I love your spirit about that. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. I want to remind everyone, this is part one of a two-part episode. Uh, Thanks for joining us here uh, in this segment. But, you know, there there will be more after this. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the list itself, you know, how you approach the game, um, stratagem you you use, secondaries you use, and also the fact that you pulled down the crown at a tournament this past weekend. Indeed. Looking forward to it. Jesper, uh, is part one of two guests we're actually going to get on this episode. We have two awesome stories we want to show you. One about our art, an Art of War assassin we'll get to in the second half of this part one episode. And then Jesper over here, you just brought down a super major with Tyranids. You're a warrior member. You are, uh, you've you been training with WTC players on TTS. This is an awesome story. Jesper, take it away. Okay, so I guess from the I'll take it from the start then. Um, I used to play a lot of 40k in my uh, teenage years. Uh, and then as I started the uh, university, University. I sort of moved to another town um, about 40 minutes north, and um, that was also at the time where War Machine was catching up, so I uh, sort of made a, a temporary switch to that uh, game. And then uh, after that, the game sort of died down. Uh, I focused on a lot, of, a lot of other strategic games instead, mainly Magic the Gathering. But uh, I sort of still had that itch for uh, tabletop games. So as 40, 40k sort of um, seemed to become... Um, a more tempting game again with like looking at the army lists, for example, I kept uh, keeping track of that. I sort of contacted a friend who, whom I had a deal with back in my teenage years where we shared all our armies. And I asked if we could perhaps resurrect that deal. And um, his answer was like, did they ever stop? So all of a sudden I had access to pretty much all the armies in the game. And, and that combined with how the game looked made me come back. Uh, and that was at the start of the ninth edition. And um, I sort of picked up Custodes, played one tournament. And then um, COVID hit, which uh, sort of coincided with me finishing my PhD thesis. So then again, I, I took a break until this spring where things started again. So from this spring to still in this spring, you've gone from more or less out of practice, not playing much Warhammer, to G- major winning champion? Uh, yeah, I guess that's the answer. <laughs> that is so, pretty pretty damn impressive, Jesper. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, so so like uh, coming back, I, I, the, the data access is um, much better than it was in my teenage years. But, but I, I know, I knew, I still know a lot of people that are sort of in the WTC uh, click in Sweden. So so that made things easier, of course. Yeah, had some great practice partners. Indeed, yeah. And then I, I did uh, have a temporary Art of War subscription back when I sort of had a, a brief start before COVID. So I, I renewed that as well to to really try to keep track of, of all the things. And uh, espe- 
especially to to learn about other armies that I don't play uh, myself. And just because I gotta know, have you found that Art of War subscription helpful to the worm? Of course, definitely. I, I think it's one thing to get other thoughts on on the armies that you play, but 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 it's also uh, perhaps the the biggest selling point I would say for me is to to uh, try to understand other armies, watching them play, looking at how ballists develop, and also the clinics. I think yeah, and uh, know know your enemy. That's that that is how one gets better at or Warhammer 40,000 is like just being aware of things and uh, like the Art of War is almost like a time saver as well as you get the insights and the hows and whys not just you know knowing what a stratagem does but why your opponent might even use it and how to avoid it. Indeed yeah and and, and it's one thing to just look at the um, the the winning lists from Goonhammer but getting getting the, the depth behind and the thought process behind this extremely helpful. Well, I'm so happy you've uh, had success with our services. That brings music to my ears. Jasper, why don't you <laughs> break down the arm list you took to tear down this GT? Absolutely. So um, I guess I could maybe mention the process behind it a little bit because I, I played two other GTs before this spring and both of them uh, I played Custodes and the first one I ended up coming third uh, and then the second one was in the like Harlequin uh, Extravaganza. So uh, th- at that time I came uh, second. <laughs> but then then for, for for this GT, I like I, I really felt like sort of the trend was that I, I I wanted to win, of course, and it was third and then second. And I like my my first approach was to simply play the best army that I could find. And if that meant that I had to sort of resurrect the Tyranid army that me and my friend had from 15 years earlier, then that would be have to be the price. So so. I, and, and that, it was that. A, <laughs> yeah, it was a bit of a win at, win at all cost approach. But so this was when the Turnit Codex had leaked. So I I spent like I don't know maybe up to a day just tr- trying to figure out lists or sort of get a general direction. Then we put in a big order so that it would hopefully come to us in time for the tournament. Uh, but uh, I, I, there's there's this de- debate about Leviathan and Kraken, but and I guess we'll get to that. But but I decided for Leviathan and um, then. The list is as follows, which is what I came to for after multiple iterations. And remember that this is post the fact that was released this weekend. So that means that the Circle of the Prey got heavily nerfed. The Malice Scepter only gets to use uh, two spells, essentially. So you actually played this tournament with the new FAQ under usage? Indeed, yeah. We did get the that's nice. We did get the opportunity to change our lists, but I. I there are some nuances that I would have changed now, but with the time that I had to to think about it, like eight hours, I, I decided to go with the same list, and I, I I don't regret it. Yeah, seriously, you won. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, well, uh, very well done. I didn't I didn't actually realize it was. Um, I think you had told me that, but I forgot that it was with the new FAQ. So that's awesome. Mm. Yeah, I think so. So so perhaps this information is um, even more relevant. Uh, but I guess I'll I'll get finally get to the list now. What I'm playing is a it's a winged the hive tyrant uh, with a super standard kit, of course, with uh, five plus final pain, the reaper for Blitrax, which is mandatory, and then adrenal glands and uh, two spells for uh, mortal wounds. Uh, I also had a neurothrope with uh, synaptic tendrils and resonance barb, which simply makes it uh, extremely reliable uh, for all the costs. And of course, it carries the two most important spells, which are Catalyst and Onslaught, that need to resolve. And then I have uh, three Soanthrope. They, they're just there for the Smite, the Synaptic Imperative, and a backup Catalyst. Three Venomthropes, Standard Maliceptor, and then four five-man units of Warriors, which 
I, after quite a lot of thought, ended up on thinking it's the best outfit for them. And they're all with uh, double bone swords and one with a venom cannon. The only difference is that one group is carrying flesh hooks, which helps a lot during the deployment. And then there's Walking Hive Tyrant with the Shard Gullet, have Venom Cannon Relic, and um, the perfectly adapted uh, Water Trait, which is the specific one for Leviathan, which is essentially Victor of the Blood, the old Victor of the Blood against Strat for Custodes, uh, but it also lets you reroll a Psychic Power cast, which is also extremely relevant since he has Paroxysm, which I would say is the third best Psychic Power. And then there's uh, three Tyrant Guard to protect the two Tyrants. There's a Harpy with uh, Synaptic Enhancement and the good cannons, an Exocrine with uh, Rush's Immunition, and ten Gargoyles. And that's the end of the list. One other important nuance is that the Walking Hive Tyrant carries Toxin Sacks for five points, which puts him at 180 points, uh, which is the same cost as the Harpy. And the Harpy has a tendency to die, so... Uh, that means that I, I get to choose the Walking Hive Tyrant, the Winged Hive Tyrant, and the Exocrine for my two of the lasts. Very good nuance. We'll definitely get to secondaries shortly. Um, but I want to take some time to go over your list's premise. It seems off the cusp like a kind of jack-of-all-trades uh, Leviathan list where you've got a lot of warriors, Venethrozonthropes, a mouse after Tyrant, Flyrant, Harpy, a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. um, so I know you said you were very deliberate with your 20 warriors, and just your choices in general seem to be very well thought out. Why this specific combination of units what's the premise here uh, i think there's a lot of uh, units that are absolutely mandatory like the the supporting cast as well as the uh, the winged hive tyrant essentially and the, the question becomes what, what are the other units that you need and i feel like you you do need something that is fast and can move on to an objective early and in this list that's gargoyles that are sort of expendable as well uh, and of course you need a lot of warriors <laughs> uh, if you're going to play leviathan and then you the, think that's the, like signature, like a signature thing of Leviathan is go deep into the warriors. Definitely, definitely. There, I, I, I played lists with, with a variety of warriors and raveners and pyro wars, but, but I, I really, I really think that the warriors are by far the best unit in Leviathan specifically. Okay, and is that just because they're objective secured troops, or, or the stat line actually makes them more efficient? You think? Yeah, the stat line combined with the free total uh, transhuman that you get on them. Uh, as well as obsec, which I think is extremely important. It makes them uh, better than the Raveners and Pyrewars, I would say. Right. So how does this army actually play on the table? I understand like the Flyeron is just amazing because he, he's so hard to deal with and he does so many mortal wounds. Another nuance of the list is that that I, I uh, the the terrain at the Vestros uh, tournaments is usually very dense. Uh, it's very much based on the VTC train. Uh, so I, and you can sort of count on that. So so I sat a lot in uh, TTS and actually uh, tried the uh, deployments with uh, various types of this army or various iterations. And what I sort of find, found out was that this amount of monsters and uh, combined with the two tyrants that can deploy in the open but still are immune to shooting essentially due to the tyrant guard. And then the, the threshold for deploying entirely out of the line of sight is about 20 tyranid warriors. The first step is to deploy with everything hidden apart from the uh, tyrants that are uh, lookout third. And then I usually, if I go first, I try to get stranglehold with my gargoyles or perhaps a turned warrior uh, unit that gets all the buffs. And I try to get some shooting if possible if my opponent hasn't pl played the um, 
or de deployed in a defensive way. And then after that, I, I sort of tried to, of course, take the middle with my true Death Star uh, of all the boarding cast, as well as the Warriors and the Tyrants. Uh, and something that, that I, I really did a lot of times in the tournament, which you can do when you have four Trinity Warrior units who are identical, is to simply try to start advancing with one Warrior unit at a time and simply choosing the one that rolls a 5+. plus. So that unit gets to go in, whereas the other ones stay back, and that unit gets all of the buffs, which are you can do after the movement step, apart from the tyrant buffs. So it's quite likely that one of the units will get to go quite far, and then you can also band on the reliability with the lure strat, so that you get 3d6 charge and choose the two highest. And that's sort of what you do, so you end up, you take control of the middle, you fish uh, for a long charge with one of the turned warrior units, uh, whereas at the same time you're sort of shooting quite well and your secondaries are usually really good as well. And uh, you do that for a while, you will essentially always trade better than your opponent and that combined with your secondary game is going to make force them to make a commitment and um, when they do you sort of jump onto them with everything you charge with all the warrior you blobs together and uh, you can actually commit your tyrant guard and your venetrops as well if you want uh, and of course the tyrants and sort of when the dust has settled you're going to have a lot of more resources left than they have and um, then you clean them up so it sounds like you've built a very defensive tyrant army here where you're basically just hiding with to the last I imagine we'll get to your secondaries in just a second, but you're you're hiding and throwing gargoyles out turn one, first warrior in a unit out turn two, third one, second one out turn three, fourth one out turn four, just kind of trade warring like that. Mm -hmm. And if you get an opportunity to really push into the middle because you you broken their back on damage over time, uh, you you kind of take that opportunity to to crush the game. Is that the basic idea? That is absolutely the basic idea. You have a castle and you send out um, surgical operations from that until the it's uh, wiping time. It sounds like you you did your homework on the tournament and you knew like 20 warriors is more or less the most you can hide mm -hmm. on this terrain with lookouts there and all that. Is What terrain format do you play on? Or is that specific to your region or is that something that you just find you can do at your local scenes? Uh, I think in Sweden, generally, we're quite the WTC fans. So uh, you can usually expect, expect the tables to be a lot of uh, WTC terrain. What happened this tournament was actually because they needed more tables was that we played a, a few uh, Games Workshop uh, inspired tables as well. Um, but the, uh, you can usually expect it for the Swedish tournaments that they're going to be. That's with the US Open Series tournament configuration. Or sorry, the terrain configuration is what you're talking about. The WTC is the, um, I guess. No, for the, the you said, uh, Games Workshop style tables. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Which is interesting because Joel, our second segment of this episode, actually just played on in the Motor City Mayhem, which was all Games Workshop style mm -hmm, tournament mm -hmm. terrain. So <laughs> uh, two totally different armies for two totally different terrain formats. You love to see that kind of list adaptations for the Tyranids. Mm -hmm. no, I like it. So it's one of the things you have to consider when you're going to a tournament is what type of terrain you reasonably expect. There's a lot of, uh, I guess, thought that goes into actually, like if you're planning on winning a lot of games, if your expectation is to win a lot of games, there's a lot of things you have to consider, such as uh, terrain format, what you're going to face, uh, maybe what you're going to face in the early rounds versus the later rounds. Um, how did you, I guess, go about, I guess maybe you didn't even, it didn't matter to you so much. But uh, because if the FAQ wasn't changing your mind, maybe uh, terrain configuration wasn't going to change your mind. Mm -hmm. uh, you think this list has the tools to compete in any format? Uh, definitely. I think the, the, the footprint is small enough th that you can usually hide uh, turn one. Of course, if, if it's a tournament that neither uses the, w, the uh, Games Workshop terrain or the WTC terrain, then things might get a bit tougher. But then again, 
I think this list is more fitting than a Kraken list because a Kraken list is much much less durable. Let's get into that as well. Um, you mentioned Kraken is obviously the other choice to Tyrion's. I know John Lennon's been doing super well on a Lord of War Streamhouse, just bringing down the GW Seedable Tournament. Mm-hmm. But this weekend we're featuring two different Leviathan armies. So mm-hmm. what, what is the pros and cons in your version? Why have you gone for Leviathan over Kraken? I think it's, well, to start off, it, I think it's more solid going for durability over speed. Um, I would also say that the, the damage output as once you connect is higher. And you, you also get, you're sort of more inclined to, to pick up a bit more shooting, uh, which combined with, yeah, because if you think about it, the warriors shoot quite a bit as well. And, and then, you know, I play with the Harpy, the Exocrine and the Shardgala Tyrant as well. I would also say that the Leviathan lists are likely to be better in the mirror. If you do the math on how the pyro damage works, for example, versus warriors with minus one damage, it's not very impressive. And there's also the fact that five raveners don't do that much damage to a warrior unit either. So the Kraken player who's u- using raveners with his strat to get in uh, is uh, paying CP and as well as losing more points than you are. If he goes in with the ravener squad, kills about three warriors, and then they die. So that's 150 points for killing 75 points. And I'm also obsex, so it didn't take me off the ob- objective and he doesn't get to overrun since I didn't get wiped. I would say that the mirror is a strong argument for uh, Leviathan as well, if you play it like. We will definitely cover the mirror matchup in part two yeah. of, the sec- of this episode, <laughs> for sure. So, um, that, that's fair for now, you know, like you're, the, the fact that the mirror is a big factor here, and like you said, you just feel a defense is more valuable to you than speed. That's a personal choice, and I like that you're mm-hmm. going for your own play style over here. That's a really, that's, we encourage that. Yeah, but, but then again, if you, if you roll an advance roll for four warrior units, one of them is going to be a five or a six, likely. Oh, definitely. The, the way you play it, it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and if it isn't, I don't believe you can get a surprisingly uh, a lot of speed as well. I mean, if you're willing to blow a CP at it too, four rolls plus a CP roll, someone is going far enough. Yeah, Look, yeah. man, as, as someone who rolls, you know, a lot of charges, you know, a lot of three inch charges. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I don't know how the dice can be sometimes. We've been beating around the bush about what your secondaries actually are here. I know you had mentioned to the last is something you, you've accounted for with your Flyron's Toxin Sacks, of all things. But what secondary plan do you go in with? Um, my general secondary plan is Stranglehold to the last and Race Banners. Uh, and then I, I sort of feel like I, I need an, to have a good argument to deviate from that plan, which of course shows up from time to time. Stranglehold's a great pick in general for the you know five objective missions and just your board control style. And then to the last is something you built for. You said it's the Flyrant, the Walking Tyrant with the Tyrant Guard protection. And what was your last one? The last one is the Exocrine. The Exocrine. Let's talk about him. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> for example, when uh, the Goonhammer article this weekend, they called my list Leviathan Good Stuff and an Exocrine. <laughs> it's a great description. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, 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 first, I'm like, <laughs> why is there an Exocrine? I think he's he's just durable enough to not get shot at because he's usually going to stand uh, together with the rest of the army so you're not going to charge him and he has you know a two plus uh, armor save he has uh, 15 wounds and uh, he's going to have the minus one to hit from the venom troops there's going to be minus one damage from the maliceptor and you can um, give him transhuman for one cp as well and uh, of course, like the the hottest turn of, uh, in the game, he's going to have a four plus invo as well, because that's when you pop the Zoanthrope Imperative. So uh, I think he died for me once this tournament. And um, I just think it, it's very hard for the opponent to, to make the dedicated choice to try to kill him. Um, so he's a very good to the last carrier. And he, 
like if you think about it, his damage output is extremely fitting for the meta with his uh, AP4 shots and the fact that he ignores all cover as well makes him absolutely delete, for example, five-man war, uh, space marine units. Definitely. What, what's the damage on his gun? The damage is damage three, and he shoots uh, six plus uh, D3 shots at uh, range That's 36. A lot of shots. It's not bad, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and, it's a little unfortunate that Tyranids are all four wound models these days, so he's not great into the mirror. Yeah, well, apart from the shooting warriors and forcing out the minus one damage threat, as well as shooting the monsters. Yeah, that's true. It'll add up. Yeah, and and then he gets to carry, the, as I said before, the the mini smite adaptive physiology. So he does the mortals as well. It's interesting, just uh, taking an exit ring, because a lot of people favor heavy venom cannons for your long-range fire support, which mm -hmm. you've also taken in your walk rent, but like carnifexes and things like that, you've just skipped all over. Yeah, there. I, I did consider carnifexes as well, but but uh, the exocrine has uh, quite a, a lot higher output, and he he's a dedicated uh, role filler as well. So so he takes the back uh, objective that's exposed, and that's where he sits and just gets to do um, deliver his damage every t every turn. Um, so he's very fitting for that role, and I I. I I would um, recommend that people try him out more. Yeah, sweet. I mean, this is what the show's about. We have actually two pretty different tier lists, even though they're both Leviathan crushing tournaments. So mm -hmm. I'm eager to get to Joel's episode, but I have a couple more questions for you before I let you go, Jesper. Mm -hmm. um, with your Tyranids, there's always kind of uh, option overload, right? You could throw a dart at the Tyranid Codex and you probably hit a good unit. Mm -hmm. So how do you come to this specific... Uh, Finagling. I mean, why no Pyrovores? Why no Raveners? I know you're not cracking, but still, they're good stat mm -hmm. lines. There's no Biovores, Death Leaper, Parasite, and Mortrex. There's so many options. Like, how do you actually come down to choosing? Yeah, it's an extreme struggle, to be honest. Um, it it takes problem. a lot of discipline. Yeah, it's a first world problem for sure. Uh, but but I think I mean I tried uh, most of those units for a few games, and then I tried to evaluate um, how good they did, or if I can uh, make do without them. So I think that could be applied for the Raveners in Leviathan, as well as the Pyre Wars. Uh, and of course, if if I for some reason end up uh, 30 or 60 points under 2k, then I my usual instinct is to add Pyre Wars. But um, I try to make the list as tight as possible, and as I said, uh, add the minimum amount of support that I can get away with, as much as many warriors as possible, and then to build for a good to the last. Um, so that's why like the other um, the other units have been prioritized away for now. We didn't actually finish talking about your secondary game plan either. You mentioned you take banners mm -hmm. most of the time, and to me banners is always a if-I-can-take-it kind of situation. So in certain missions, like Ban and Sanctuaries as an example, mm -hmm. you're never raising banners in midfield, or, or maybe you are, and I'm under Estimating your army, so uh, um, do you always take banners? Like, what's the deal? Uh, I, not as a as a rule in in this tournament. I I did choose banners every time, uh, but um, there there are of course alternatives. For example, the the psychic uh, secondaries can work as well, and I I, I am able to play for retrieve Nachman data as well. Uh, but I really like the banners that you you commit your action once, and then you can sort of move on. Uh, and it's very nice to to not have to bend a warrior unit, for example, to do the 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 retrieve Nachman data. Is it possible that they also kind of like lure your opponent towards you? Definitely, definitely. Because uh, yeah, the combination of to the last and and banners really make people sort of need to get into your 
the Death Star and and people aren't going to survive it. And I do. I, I think of banners sometimes as you're almost like in, you're giving your opponent a path to victory, like somewhere they can influence what you're actually doing on the table. But you kind of, I think, almost maybe want to create that scenario. It's a fantasy for them because you're gonna you're luring them in to chew them up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they they've still got to try something. They can't just let you get away with uh, getting those points. Well, it's almost like a perfect secondary plan, right? To the last, you start with 15 points until your opponent goes and kills your tyrant sitting behind tyrant guard or the exocrine. Have fun with that. Mm-hmm. And then Stranglehold, you're just going to score that every turn because it's so easy to and so natural. You charge onto an objective, you walk onto an objective, you're already going to be in midboard. Mm-hmm. And then Banners, you're, gonna, you're again scoring it until your opponent stops you from scoring it, which in this case, Paul, like you pointed out, brings the opponent towards you, which is totally what you want. Like Malice Scepter start blowing stuff up, Bone Swords start chopping away. It's good stuff going on. It's, it's very hard to beat Tyranids when they're already beating you and you have to come towards them because then you're just walking into their damage output range and it's very you can't just do that. You gotta get the Tyranids to come to you. So I love that you've created a list, Jesper, that starts off by winning the game basically, makes the opponent come to you mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah, that's really captures the strategy. I do want to remind everyone that this is uh, part one of the conversation. There's more to come, uh, but before we wrap this segment up, I want to ask you about uh, a section we have on the show called the uh, Brutal and Cunning, or Cunning and Brutal, mm-hmm. and it's, it's about like a, a cool combo, something that takes you know two or three steps sometimes to pull off. Uh, something that you may keep in your you know a couple of CP in your back pocket for that you use consistently that, that really seems to make an impact or maybe give you a push, uh, maybe dig you out of a bad situation. Do you have anything like that um, in your bag of tricks? Oh, interesting. I mean, the uh, that's quite limited now with the encircle the prey going away. Uh, but I think uh, something that I saw in a, in a tournament that that I uh, I really looked out for all the time was to uh, shard some kind of screening unit or unit that I was going to kill with one of my uh, damage output dealers with the 10-man gargoyles as well. And then to overrun the gargoyles to get an extensive move lock onto the opponent. And I think that's going to become even more relevant. That's very clever. Yeah. I like that a lot. Well, it's been a great, that's a really cool. great talk. And we have a, a, if you're hanging out listening to just episode one here, we have, we're about to take a break and talk to a completely different take on Tyranids. And then in episode two of this two part conversation, we're going to join Jesper again over there. That's right. We're bringing not one, but two guests to you for this episode. Let us know what you think about this format switch in our feedback. Please leave us a comment on YouTube. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Uh, this is like Paul said, part one of a two-part conversation so we're going to break down all the matchups in part two before we get into jesper and how he handles those matchups let's learn about joel and how he plays his tier and it's which are totally different to jesper's approach it's a tier palooza Welcome to part two, or is this part four, part three? I don't know who's counting anymore of a very special Art of War episode uh, where we're talking to Joel Wilson. Joel, uh, you already know Nick. We're going to talk about how uh, you've recently had an encounter with Nick and some other Art of War members. Yeah, it's a, a pleasure to be here. It's been great to, to meet all the Art of War guys, and thank you for having me here. It's a nidstravaganza. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So Joel, actually, I had the pleasure of playing against him at the Motor City Mayhem. And not only did I have the pleasure of playing against him, so did Jack, and so did Chester, and so did four other unfortunate people. Because Joel soloed this tournament all the way up until the finals, assassinating not one, not two, but three different Art of War coaches. And this is a story too good not to highlight. Oh, let's talk about it. So, uh, Joel, if you wouldn't... So in this segment, we're going to run down, you know, what's in your list, you know, maybe talk about how you employed some stratagems, and we'll talk about specific matchups in the next part of this conversation but you know i want to talk about just again how you approach these games and and what's been working for you yeah so i think something important preface going into this is that 
at Motor City, uh, we played just before the most recent Tyranid FAQ release. So a lot of my game plan was built around the output that the Maliceptors brought to the table uh, before the changes to Hive Nexus and uh, the, the stratagem for casting additional power change. Um, so my I kind of built my list primarily around interaction in the psychic phase. That was that was the the crux of the that was the crux of the battle plan for the most part. That is a great great point. We're talking about pre FAQ and then and maybe actually in the next part of this conversation uh, we talk about how you would change it uh, for some of these matchups and what the, the FAQ impacted to you. Uh, but mm-hmm. would you mind telling us what's in the list? And there is a speci- like a specific section of the list that uh, that we'll talk about once we get there. Absolutely, yeah. So um, in the HQ section, I've got uh, the Hive Tyrant on foot. I've always preferred the Walking Hive Tyrant. He's less of an investment. And uh, I really like the World of Trade Direct Items because it can supercharge those warriors to make them hit on twos, which is super great. And this was all Leviathan, right? Oh, yeah. It's all Leviathan. The idea was I wanted to bring as many synapse creatures as I could reasonably bring to take great advantage of that permanent ability where you can't wound me better than a four plus. And a particular unit we'll get to later in the list takes great advantage of the single reroll to hit every time you shoot or fight the other half of Leviathan. So, so yeah, Hype Tarrant. Monster's Bone Sword, Reaper of Obliter X, and Direct Guidance. He's kind of the guy who's going to run up and kill something in melee, and while also buffing the Warriors. Neurothrope with the Resonance Barb. I never leave home without that, because plus two to cast on those essential buff powers, like Catalyst and Onslaught, is really essential to get it, make sure that it always goes off when you need it to go off. I've also got three units of Warriors, one big block to throw all the buffs on and go out and kill stuff, uh, steal objectives. And then the other two are on kind of uh, backline patrol. Um, they're just units of three with you know no upgrades just to fill out the battalion and to hold my backline points. I've got the Death Leaper, which is just an incredible character. He is fantastic. I'm a big fan uh, of the Death Leaper also. I think it just creates this really cool interaction for you, not so much for your mm-hmm. opponent, but you know it's fun to try to work around if you are playing against it. Oh, he's so good. Yeah, he can just hide behind big monsters, not get shot, and then give me obsec. He's great. And then, of course, the workhorses of the list are the three Maliceptors. This is kind of like the core, like the nucleus of this army that I kind of built the list around. And to support those guys and give buffs to the rest of the army, I've got to uh, a unit of Venomthropes and a unit of Zoanthropes. The essential buffing pieces that are, that are uh, seen in most Tyranid lists. And then to be kind of the frontline bruisers, I've got three Carnifexes with Enhanced Senses and Heavy Venom Cannons. And these are the guys who really take advantage of that Leviathan reroll because they have three shots each and they're each individuals. So they each individually get to reroll one shot. So it makes those Venom Cannons very consistent. Uh, I oh, want to talk and, about the Malceptors for just one mm-hmm. second before we go on, is that Absolutely. a lot of players, especially early on, as soon as the Codex hit, there was a question, well, why not load up on three Malceptors? And then all of like the, you know, like the, the great minds of the Tyranid players were like, well, one is probably all you need, two is like overkill, and three is just, you know... You don't. You don't need it. It's you're not going to win with that. You got to diversify your points. And yet, mm-hmm. here we are seeing three malceptors like just wrecking face. I mean, I don't think that's news to anyone that they can do that. But why did you go with three as opposed to you know what seems to be the common convention of maybe even going down to one? So I think the difference is a lot of people tend to play their malceptor as a defensive piece. They'll utilize the minus one strength aura and the the debuffs, and they'll kind of sit it in the backfield as a counter threat. 
whereas when I me bringing three Maliceptors, the way I play is very aggressive, and I build lists to run into the middle and dominate the midboard, um, and to basically just bully people off of points. And Maliceptors are amazing at that. They run in and they will just mortal wound to death whatever is in the midfield. Um, so the idea with three is that if I go second, um, or if I just have a bad first turn and you kill one or even two of my Maliceptors, which is, you know, more common than you would think, I still have that redundancy, you know, to, to keep the core output in the list present, which is the Maliceptors. Yeah, uh, good point. And I think, you yeah, creating the situation with your opponent to feel like, oh, they just, they just can't stop it. They're, the fountain of mortal wounds is, is ever springing, and there's nothing they can do. Yeah, absolutely. That's oh, right. I know there was more to the list. But... Well, yeah, finish out the rest of your list and we'll get into it. Yeah, of course. The, the only thing left to say is one heartbeat. I kind of wanted to future-proof my list a little bit. I had a feeling that Encircle the Prey was going to go away. So I didn't want to lean too heavy into the harpies. Uh, I think one with the Synapse upgrade is great because a lot of the times I'll just throw him into the back line, apply Shadows in the Warp to like key enemy psychers and pick off, you know, uh, threats hiding behind buildings. So yeah, I just, I love having the one the one harpy in the list to give me that utility. As a victim of the harpy, he was really annoying. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, he does. He's he does a lot of work for sure. I gotta ask a couple of questions about your list as a premise. Most tier mm-hmm. lists I've seen, whether they're Kraken, Leviathan, whatever chapter, they run more medium bug stuff. You know, more warriors, as raveners, pyrovores, maybe uh, zone mm-hmm. throws are popular. You you took a little bit of that, I'd say. You took a decent chunk, but you're taking so many monsters. It's like maximum monster it out over here. What made you build this st- style list, and how did you come up with that? Yeah. So for me, I've always, my play style has always been hyper aggression. I love getting into the thick of it and like just being in my opponent's face as soon as possible and like forcing them to make decisions. So the, basically the, when I looked at warriors, I realized that they become slightly tougher in Leviathan, but they're still very easy to kill. They're only a four up save. They, yeah, you could give them a five up invuln, but that's still not that great uh so to small arms you know like mass small arms like tyranids kind of the warriors kind of melt away but carnifexes are great because they're low points investment but very durable they're hard to remove and i can kind of just send them into the midboard and like my opponent has to usually overcommit to kill them because they're they got the minus one damage they got the two up save i could give them the four up invuln so um yeah, they just feel like um, far more durable in the long run than the warriors. So that I, you know, that I have that one unit warriors to go out and just like kill whatever I need to kill, while the carnifexes hold down on point. So you're almost using carnifexes kind of like they're medium sized bugs, but they're tougher and they kind of fit the profile of your army better. Yeah, and I that way I have I can focus my buffs on specific units that I want to keep alive rather than having to spread them out over multiple warrior squads. Um, because the warriors without any buffs on them, like no five of fill no pain, no invuln, they're fair they die very quickly. Yeah, that makes sense. So I gotta ask the elephant in the room question here. You're running triple mouse after your list is based on mouse scepters, and this tournament was the day before 
mouse I've just gotten it. So what are you doing now? Yeah, so I'm actually still running a lot of maliceptors. Um, the funny thing is I was discussing with some people at the event about the FAQ, and I, I basically said, you know, the maliceptors, their output got halved. Like, they can only maximum cast two powers now instead of casting up to four. Uh, but half of far too many mortal wounds is still a lot of mortal wounds. So I am going to continue to run two maliceptors in my list pretty much always, because until they get like a points change or any meaningful change outside of, you know, just reducing the amount of powers they cast, they're still amazing. They're stu- they're the only big bug outside of characters that has a built-in and vulnerable save, which is just incredible. Every other bug, you have to pay 25 points for it, which is like a huge investment. And they're just all, they, they have good melee, they have good psychic, and they get synapse. So they have the permanent transhuman, which is great. So they're still just a great, like, you know, brick of wounds to throw into the midboard. But I have swapped the third Maliceptor for the Swarm Lord because uh, I like the utility that he brings to the table with uh, giving Obsec. Uh, and that makes those Carnifexes even more impactful for what I want them to do. Because now they act exactly like Warriors because they have Obsec, which is super cool. Yeah. Swarm Lord's a really interesting shout, too. I know. Uh, I don't know anyone's actually been running a Swarm Lord with much success. I'm, everything in the Tyranny Codex is good, so it doesn't surprise me. But. Um, what does he actually give you for the list that you that you think is worth it? Is it just the OPSEC and the chapter mastery rolls, or is he himself an awesome piece? Yeah, so there's three kind of main things that he brings to the table. Um, he is super tough. Uh, he, you know, he's a walking hive tyrant stat line, and he has an ability, so he reduces damage. Uh, he ignores the first failed save in, in combat. Then he also um, brings... The utility of full rerolls to hit, which allows me to drop direct guidance on my Hive Tyrant and bring the 5-up Feel No Pain Warlord trait instead, because now I can just throw the full reroll buff on whatever warriors need to go kill something, rather than investing a Warlord trait in doing a similar buff. And then also, like I said, I can give Carnifexes, Zoanthropes, whatever need it, Obsec for turns in which I want to make plays to steal objectives, which is super you know, helpful in a world where I am less likely to bully you off of objectives with Mortal Wounds alone, and I might need that little extra help to steal the point. Yeah, that's really cool. I think Swarm Lord's a great addition to your army, uh, just having, it's more of a diverse profile of monsters you're running, so Swarm, and Swarm Lord is, is no joke himself, gives you different mm-hmm. tools, I like that a lot. Is he the same cost as a Maliceptor? Uh, no, he is significantly more expensive. He's 220 points. So I had to drop a Maliceptor and two Warriors to fit into the list. But um, but I think that the output that he brings to the table, both in melee and he still casts two. So essentially, he's the same psychic output as a Maliceptor, just no extra mortal wounds when he casts. So I think that, yeah, that output he brings in the fight phase and the psychic phase, as well as buffing my character, or all my units, uh, I, I, I've had a lot of success with him uh, recently, and I can see why people don't necessarily bring him, because you have to kind of build your list around him, um, and he has a big investment, but I just like that he's not a gimmick anymore. Like, he used to be very one-dimensional, where he was just kind of a delivery system for other bugs, but now he actually feels like a kind of a centerpiece model that you would build your list around. Yeah. I like that too. I think it's a really cool idea. I think Swarmwood's great, and I like that he's got a balanced role in here, and it's not just some gimmick like you called it. Mm-hmm. Seems like it fits well. He got a couple of waves in this situation, uh, so you just keep uh, putting pressure on the opponent round after round. I will say, as the opponent, it definitely felt like it was a never-ending wall of Tyranids. 
It's like every turn my army got smaller and the bugs just kept coming. Okay, let's, let's talk about secondary choices and things. You know, it's, it seems like, you know, with the maybe with the types of tyrannids you've chosen that, that maybe you're uh, exposing yourself to some, some points for your opponent to take. Um, is that a concern for you? How are you mitigating that? What, what's, uh, well, I guess first let's talk about what secondaries you, you choose more uh, most often. And then uh, are you then defining secondaries for your opponent is, uh, is part two to that question. Uh, absolutely. I typically go with uh, the the core two that I I pretty much always take, um, with a couple of exceptions, are Strangle and Warp Ritual, because Strangle is obvious because I want to make those aggressive plays for the midboard. If I'm not controlling at least half the objectives, then I'm not succeeding in my battle plan. Um, and then uh, Warp Ritual makes... I, have, I initially liked psychic interrogation because you can get 15 for it but i found uh, so many games where i miss at least one to two turns whether i get uh you know whether my characters move a little too far away from the center because i need to apply aggression you know pressure or there's other psychers that can like interact with me and stop my psychic interrogation um at least once or twice um just you know because i roll low or just out of a a fluke ability like sisters who can deny on a six or an ability that denies on a four plus and warp ritual feels great because i can wait until turn three four five until like a lot of stuff has died and then i can start racking up points or even attempt it every single turn and if they deny it once or twice i still get the max point it's not 15 but it's still a lot of points and then the third one was typically matchup dependent it, it, like if i'm on a mission that has banners uh, as an option, you know, like two objectives near my deployment zone, I'll take banners because I'm great at holding down my own objectives because uh, I'm applying constant pressure. Or I will take uh, some sort of kill-based secondary because I want to be killing stuff with mortal wounds. So if like you have four, if you have four characters, I can reasonably kill two to three of them. Um, if you have a lot of no prisoners points, you know, if you give up like you know ten to thirteen, then I'll take that. I didn't. I actually didn't even build this list to go for a hundred point games. Like I didn't get a single hundred point victory at Motor City. But what I built it to do was to basically bully my opponent out of getting points, so that way I can kind of enact my game plan and get enough points where I win over in the end. And I do give up a lot of bring it down points. I think this list comes to, gets up like sixteen. But the way I counteract that is just by using the monsters to be to pressure my opponent out of losing other secondary points and primary points. So yes, they're probably going to get like 12 to 15 for bringing down by the end of the game, and most opponents did. But I end up winning because um, I apply so much pressure early on that I keep them on the back foot long enough to keep myself just ahead of them when it comes down to the very end of it. I mean, a win is a win, so can't can't argue with the results. For sure. And, you know, I, I like the approach. It's just, you know, very 40K. I'm, there's not much to it. You're just going to run at your opponent, constant pressure, play the game, fight your opponent, win the game. I like it. Not to diminish it, though. You played it really skillfully. We'll get into that for sure in part two. We'll recover your matchups. Absolutely. So I had a, a question that has been burning at me for, I think I asked you when we actually played the game. Why is mm -hmm. there no Flyrin? Yeah, so that's actually a really controversial opinion that I have. I've never personally been sold on the Flyrins. Um, I think that... Uh, never. Like for editions or like just not in this edition? Well, just not in this edition. He doesn't just hate Flyrins, Paul. <laughs> no, I, look, there could be, like, I want to know how deep this went. 
you know, so. <laughs> I mean, I, I see why people like them um, in, in like the current book. Uh, they played very differently in the other book, but in the current book, I, they're more expensive than a walking hive tyrant. They don't get two weapons. They're less durable. And as a result, you have to invest um, things like the 5 of Philippine Warlord trait. Uh, you, you know, you have to, a lot of the, pretty much every list I've seen of Flyerton, they end up paying the tax of bringing a unit of Tyrant Guard to protect that flying hive tyrant because it's not that durable. And the only thing it does is melee. So if it's sitting back and getting shot by your opponent, it's not interacting with them because it doesn't have a heavy venom cannon. So they, you know, you end up investing like 250 points into this hive tyrant that isn't any more deadly than the the walking one would have been. And the walking one, uh, the similar, it's a similar idea I had with the Carnifexes where uh, I bring the heavy venom cannon because even when they're not in melee, they're still contributing to the game. They have output, they're killing vehicles, they're picking off key targets, you know, that they can see with the heavy venom cannons, and they have that consistency with the Leviathan rerolls. And the flying hive tyrant is missing out on that. He he only gets the one gun or the one weapon, either a gun or the sword. Most people take the sword um, in the new book. It used to be that you could take both weapons, but now you can't. And I feel like that's a big drawback that I have never been sold on. In, in the new book. That's a very interesting counter-argument against a flyer, and I definitely see how it makes sense in the context of your army, because you're all about applying pressure constantly and, and never stopping. Whereas Tyrant Guard are points not spent on applying pressure, and you're right, you do need to bring some Tyrant Guard in to help out your flyer. And your flyer is, is more of a threatening piece that's like a precision scalpel. He's not just crashing into whatever any time like the rest of your army is he's crashing into something very deliberate and he's trying to find that opportunity so it's not a, like between the tyrant and the tyrant guard that's like 400 points going away from your list's actual premise that's pretty interesting actually yeah i just think the like yeah the tyrant guard themselves are not like that an amazing of a stat line so i just i didn't like the idea of having to pay the tax for those especially since i'm only running one hive tyrant so I wanted to try to get the most bang for my buck with that one hive tyrant. If so, yeah, picking and choosing what you would invest in—that's uh, uh, that's good list design right there. If you're planning on just taking stats and crushing your opponent in sheer volume of efficiencies and damage and all that, why not take pyrovores? They seem so like the most stats point stats efficient unit you got from a profile perspective. That's an interesting um, point that I've that I've thought about myself. I, I pyrovores are another unit that I have personally never been sold on in my own playstyle. My issue with pyrovores is that they're very slow. They only go five inches and they lack the punching power. Like they have their fists that are like AP three, but it's similar to the, uh, to the, um, the tyrant guard where they don't have a lot of attacks and they're only one damage. So the output there in melee is not that stellar. And Without the Swarm Lord in the list, I feel like they, they also don't have like OPSEC or anything. So yeah, their output with the Flamers are cool. It's good. But what I found funny enough is that it, when you hit the Tyranid Mirror, um, they're not as effective as you would hope them to be. Because Tyranids have a ton of minus one damage that makes their two damage Flamers kind of moot. Like I played, um, what, three Tyranid Mirror matches at MCM. And, uh, and two of those lists were Leviathan lists with like two units of pyrovores and both of those games they the pyrovores kind of didn't really do anything because every time that they would shoot a carnifex or you know warriors or something like that i would just do the minus one damage you know whether it's the stratagem for the warriors or innately for the carnifexes and they end up 
doing like a couple of wounds and then um, I'll hit them with some warriors and they'll kind of just melt away. So they are low investment, but also they're not helping me apply that pressure and like hold the midfield that the same way that a Carnifex would, because they bring a much more durable stat line for not that many more points invested. Yeah, that's, uh, I like that. Like, look, there's there's methodology. Like, you have a whole thing uh, around this list, and I, I like that it's so thought out. And then uh, we get those results on the table. Now, look, I know Tyranids are good right now. Everyone knows Tyranids are good right now, but you still have to play the game, um, and you still have to compose a list. And it seems like you, you you're really doing that and firing all cylinders. So this this uh, I want to remind everyone. This is also just part one of this conversation. Uh, we're going to pause right now and then jump into part two. So we hope to see you in that section of the podcast as well. Uh, Joel, Nick, anything you want to add before we pause this one and pick it up over there? No, I think we've done a great job covering the topics between Joel and Jasper. I'm a full Tyrion aficionado, and now I'm ready for Joel to break down exactly how he ripped apart Art of War so I can learn from that. We'll see you in a few minutes. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. TheArtOfWar40K.com <laughs>